Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's remarkable in terms of the frequency. I mean, if you think about what's remarkable in this country, well, 14% of the population have irritable bowel syndrome, tremendous number of patients. Um, well, uh, restless leg syndrome occurs in 7 to 10% worldwide. Um, and half require medications. As Mark said, uh, many of these medications don't work, and I'll give you a little background towards that. It interrupts with sleep. Um, um, and most recently, uh, very interestingly, it's been associated with a higher incidence of stroke and hypertension, therefore bringing this down towards a bigger application. It's not just moving around being in your own bedroom because your wife or husband can't stand being in the same bed, and kicking and jerking at night is a phenomenon that occurs with it. That's the periodic limb motor disturbance, PLMD. But that's not truly the restless leg syndrome part of it. So the RLS is while you're awake. There, in studies, there are ways to look at it. The international restless leg cells uh, RLS scale, um, uh, which is a 10 uh, questionnaire with four points, so how much does it affect your life, how much does it interfere, how severe is it, and so forth, ranked 0 to 4 to come up with uh, 0 to 40 on the scale. Uh, there's a global response to medications, mild, moderate, or marked. And then there are things that can be applied to your legs that actually measure movement uh, and give us actual uh, a number, numerical changes. So in orange, you see the top three things. These are the things that made the Johns Hopkins uh, and University of, uh, sorry, Penn State people very uh, prominent in their fields. It's iron deficiency uh, in the brain measured by MRI scanning. It's altered dopaminergic tone or activity uh, in the brain, and uh, peripheral neuropathy can be part of it. Um, so you can actually have a peripheral neuropathy disease and have just that being the cause for restless leg syndrome. But um, most patients who have uh, restless leg syndrome have iron deficiency as part of it, and we'll explore the reasons why and maybe explain why things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and inflammation factor into that. And then later on the talk, I'll um, discuss the lower four aspects of pathophysiology. Uh, iron deficiency is really important, both in uh, primary and secondary. Um, with respect to uh, iron deficiency, when I started learning about restless leg syndrome, I said, I'm a gastroenterologist. I should eat this up. I'm all about learning about why somebody who's, why somebody comes to me with iron deficiency. And in fact, um, I've had patients come to me with 
colon cancer who are anemic and they develop restless leg syndrome and that's the reason why. They never had it before and then uh, you remove the cancer, replete their iron and their RLS gets better. But what uh, is found also is that the dopamine cells are abnormal in the brain. They have less receptors. Um, there, there is increased turnover and more dopamine in the brain but at the same time, the dopamine cells are dying and they're having less um, uh, receptors. So um, dopaminergic medications can help, but it's curious in the fact that um, there is actually more dopamine in the brain. Now, again, this is something that occurs in the evening and there is a circadian rhythm to iron flux in the brain. Um, and then finally, it's not on this slide, but in uh, autopsy studies, uh, they've looked at a uh, hormone called hepcidin and prohepcidin, and in patients with restless leg syndrome, there's more hepcidin in the brain. Hepcidin is something that regulates uh, transfer of iron into, ce into cells, and I'll show you how that is. So again, uh, Let's compare what is currently available for RLS. Um, if you have a patient whose iron level is low, you give them intravenous iron and you can uh, have a complete remission in 68%. Not 100%, nothing's 100%. So uh, Mirapex uh, dopaminergic was compared to pregabulin, Lyrica, um, and the IRLS score, the International uh, Rososeg score, dropped uh, three for um, the dopaminergic in that study and six uh, for the um, pregabulin. Um, the global responses were actually very good um, and yet 33% uh, of the placebo had a good response as well. Um, so Taken on a scale, let's say somebody's a 15 on their IRLS scale, they drop three and they go to 12. Symptomatically, that's relatively good, uh, but it's no home run. And there is no great home run medication, although narcotics are becoming a uh, good way uh, for the conventional doctor to treat the painful restless legs at night and help with sleep. Um, and here we see a significant drop in the IRLS scale for Oxycontin in this, uh, in this European study uh, that dropped it from, uh, from, dropped it 16 points versus placebo of nine. So how did my world of gastroenterology change into something that looked at other syndromes in the same way that I was looking at it irritable bowel syndrome. Namely, when I looked at irritable bowel, I thought, okay, there are 10 different causes for IBS that explain the same set of symptoms, or just has to be, no, nobody's the same. Well, um, I went to a conference on post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome and the treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is associated with post-infectious IBS. So somebody has, let's say, Campylobacter, a month or two later, they have irritable bowel syndrome when they've never had it before. Well, 
in the same token, one of the physicians presenting, Dr. Pimentel, um, gave the statistics on fibromyalgia that that was associated with bacterial overgrowth as well. And I was taking care of the gentleman that we see here. He had post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome to a mild degree, but severe restless leg syndrome after having a dysentery-like infection. And he was suffering with this for 14 years. So I was thinking, well, uh, what's all about fibromyalgia? I didn't know much about it. And it turns out 20% of fibro cases have restless leg syndrome. So making the correlation, the jump, saying, well, could that be tied in with post-infectious state as well? I, uh, I gave him an antibiotic, uh, which is gut-directed. And he had a dramatic response in his restless leg syndrome. And then I started seeing patients like this, and I think all these patients were coming to me, just my recognition of all their extra intestinal manifestations was not as great as it was prior to uh, 2005. And so here's a woman who had post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, a uh, year later developed uh, fibromyalgia, um, nine years later developed severe restless leg syndrome, uh, misdiagnosed as narcolepsy and actually never treated, but she had such severe uh, loss of sleep that she'd fall asleep uh, whilst driving. Interstitial cystitis was a, another phenomenon, and I tested her for bacterial overgrowth, and she had an abnormal breath test, treated her uh, with antibiotic therapy and medications to heal the gut lining, and then um, uh, medicine to stimulate the small bowel to flush out bacteria, and she was dramatically better. Uh, and then I later switched out the uh, erythromycin as a prokinetic to naltrexone, and she even got better. So during this stage of my life in terms of clinical research, I was forming uh, a notion that the inflammation from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth was somehow tied in with cytokines and damage uh, uh, and to the brain uh, by affecting either direct cytokine activity or affecting uh, iron trans uh, formation, iron movement within the brain. And this hormone, hepcidin, that I mentioned, is the hormone that regulates activity of iron. Um, so not only absorbing iron, if your hepcidin is high because of inflammation, and this, this um, hormone is made by the liver and it responds to inflammation in the body, that you decrease iron absorption, but also you sequester it in macrophages, and you prevent the iron from circulating. And there are animal models to show that when there's inflammation in the uh, brain of rats, uh, when there's inflammation in the body, there's uh, a new source of hepcidin formation surrounding the brain of rats, and therefore less iron may be getting into the CNS. So in terms of um, how does this relate to the gut, well, with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, there's definitely inflammation. The uh, bacteria adhere to the lining of the small bowel. 
you get inflammation, uh, you get uh, tumor necrosis factor, uh, you get uh, uh, translocation of the coating of the uh, bacteria, and um, these lipopolysaccharides increase uh, hepcidin, as does interleukin-6. Uh, um, and then with respect to um, the whole network, do you have inflammation, as I said, one possibility, increasing the um, hepcidin production on the covering the brain, preventing the bloodstream from getting its iron into the brain, or as I said, at least in human studies, there's more hepcidin in RLS brains for some reason, and that's preventing the iron from getting into the cells. Nonetheless, you get less iron in the brain. So we started doing studies on restless legs syndrome patients and queried, well, how many people with RLS have um, SIBO? And so a study uh, that we did looked at primary restless leg syndrome patients. These were not patients who were known to have a disease to cause small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, such as Crohn's disease or celiac disease. Uh, they were just routine patients, um, and 69% uh, had a positive breath test compared to 11% of controls who took this lactulose breath test, which is an indirect measure of SIBO. So we started doing studies. The first study actually uh, was done in irritable bowel patients who had a positive lactulose breath test. And of um, 200 patients, 13 of these patients uh, had restless leg syndrome. They were undiagnosed before, but um, at that point we didn't really know the link between SIBO and RLS in a large population. So of the 200 patients, 13 patients had restless leg syndrome, treated them with a very rigorous uh, therapy for bacterial overgrowth, although we currently use actually a higher dose of rifaximin for irritable bowel syndrome. And 77% of those 13 patients had a significant global response of uh, their restless leg syndrome. In half of them, they had 100% relief of restless leg syndrome. And these are patients, uh, some who had failed other therapies and others who had not been tried on anything. With advertisements, I found uh, 21 patients with idiopathic restless leg syndrome. They were treated with a course of rifaximin, which I'll go over. So looking at just the effects of monotherapy, not the additional therapies. And of course, when you're trying to publish anything, if you're giving complex root, um, protocol of medications, except for things like oncology where they do this all the time, it's very hard to get something published. So of these patients, 71% um, had a positive breath test and uh, 14 patients did very well. They had a very marked to moderate global response. And I'm gonna show you their response. So in this study, um, it was given, the rifaximin was given for 10 days and then every other day for 30 days, for, to, uh, for a total of 30 days. So therefore, um, 
we looked at their, uh, the International Restless Leg Scale and it dropped a good 10 points, which again is as good as um, pregabulin in that study um, that I mentioned beforehand. And that's just using one agent. And this is treating gut bacteria. It doesn't get absorbed from the bloodstream. So all it's doing is changing the microbiome. And we think primarily the microbiome of the small intestine. The small intestine, parenthetically, has very, very few bacteria in it. And by doing so, it creates a uh, very innocent situation where the villi are able to absorb nutrients. But when you get overgrowth of bacteria there, then you get damage. Whereas the colon in the opposite is filled with uh, trillions of bacteria and it uh, often is a very important role in uh, our um, general health to have a good balance and a lot of bacteria in the colon. So uh, finally, in the monotherapy uh, study, uh, we looked at a double-blind study. Uh, these patients had uh, moderately severe uh, restless leg syndrome uh, with a scale of greater than 15 out of 40. They were not iron deficient. They were randomized, and they were uh, treated for 10 days with a higher dose, and then looked at um, how they did. And during the study, um, the ones in orange uh, dropped uh, significantly uh, from starting up near 25 and dropping down to uh, 20 on their IRLS scale. And then, because this treatment was short term, and that's not how I treat restless legs patients, but for the purpose of the study, what was the effect? They lost effect starting at day 18, uh, at day tw 25. So um, the placebo patients had no uh, st statistical change from baseline to end of therapy, um, but the effect of antibiotic therapy was seen once again. But it's not 100%. So I've talked about the role of SIBO with inflammation, and then um, I started collaborating more with Dr. Walters, and he's a big brain thinker. He said, okay, yes, inflammation from SIBO is important, but what about all these other conditions of known secondary restless leg syndrome? What can we uh, make of that? Since there inflammation elsewhere? And so I uh, reviewed uh, 40 uh, disorders with uh, restless leg syndrome that's secondary, and many of them, 83%, had inflammatory phenomenon to their disease state. And we can go through these things um, on your own, but with, for instance, gastrointestinal diseases associated with restless legs, four out of uh, five had uh, inflammation, many of the ruminological conditions as well. Inflammation, inflammation has been looked at specifically in the kidney disease patients, worse there is their general inflammation, the worse there is their A new brand of restless legs associated with HIV, 
the more inflammatory genes they had, the worse the rest of syndrome, and then mixed population, and the C-reactive protein, and the higher C-reactive protein, the worse mouse's uh, brain cells iron deficient and they added enkephalin, it made the dopamine cells live and work better. Um, and then a PET scan uh, was found to show that the less uh, uh, endorphin, the worse the restless leg syndrome. So I'm just going to jump to the uh, last study and, um, that I did, which was basically give antibiotic therapy for SIBO and then follow it with LDN. So treating not only inflammation from uh, bacterial overgrowth, but just overall inflammation. I looked at 40 patients, ultimately, who had uh, evidence for bacterial overgrowth, um, again, the breath test varies. Some of, I reread seven of the 37, and they were normal, so we'll, that'll play into does LDN work on its own. And here are the uh, important findings of the study. I defined responders as those who said they were markedly better or moderately better with their restless leg syndrome, and of the 40, 26 or 65 percent had a dramatic response to therapy. Um, breaking it down, um, who actually did better in terms of what dose of LDN? Turns out the lower dose LDN did better with respect to response uh, in these two groups. And there are many reasons for that. Um, maybe it's autoimmune phenomenon. We know that uh, sometimes uh, autoimmune diseases respond better to lower doses of LDN. And then finally, let's say the breath test was misread um, by prior standards and they never had bacterial overgrowth and they were just using the LDN. It turns out that 57% um, of the small group did well just with LDN alone. So of the 23 of 26 patients who responded very well, I was able to follow them up to seven years now, um, which is a prolonged period of time with a mean of uh, over two years, um, and they continued to do well with their restless leg syndrome. Unfortunately, 15% had side effects from the uh, uh, LDN, um, despite the fact that unfortunately three of those were actually doing well, those three had to stop. So the new ther uh, theory that I've got is that there's other factors playing roles in restless leg syndrome, not only the SIBO with its cytokine activity playing into perhaps less iron in the brain, uh, that they have dopamine dysfunction, um, and that's tied to get together with endorphin deficiency, 
and yet it's not all one thing. We have other conditions. So uh, restless leg syndrome really has a major impact in our country. Billions are spent uh, and uh, 15, 10 to 10% of our population is affected. We need to think about inflammation as part of the paradigm. And uh, for all of us LDN enthusiasts, L uh, endorphin deficiency is a real phenomenon in restless leg syndrome. And with more studies, uh, we may see the effect of LDN in the future. Thank you. I'll take questions later. I'm going to launch into ulcerative colitis um, um, and talk about the pathophysiology, a little bit about why it might be effective, uh, LDN might be effective, the problems with treating ulcerative colitis patients, and then uh, a study that I published, and then post-study uh, findings on other patients. Just as a background, we have genes that make us risk for diseases, you know, and it's no different with ulcerative colitis. Um, environmental triggers, uh, whether it be um, toxins in our environment, uh, trigger uh, inflammation, and the wrong set of bacteria uh, in our intestine also plays a role, and dysbiosis, namely having the wrong group of bacteria can affect uh, the, uh, the gut lining and allow environmental triggers to go down and affect our colon. Uh, autoimmune phenomenon and immune dysfunction is part of the uh, part and parcel of the pathophysiology of UC. Um, there's a bacteria, anaerobic bacteria, that has um, certain uh, antigens which then are recognized as foreign and this P. anca uh, is one of the most common autoantibodies that we have, and then we have antibodies against the cells themselves. Inflammation is really uh, a phenomenon that it goes uh, in a major way, and we have immune disturbances because we start losing recognition of what our healthy, normal bacteria are. And when that happens, as I'll show you in a cartoon in a moment, uh, we have inflammation occur, changes in the regulation and the uh, types of T cells that we are living with, which do bad things. So um, to start with, uh, there may be excess or abnormal bacterial, bacterial byproducts that start sneaking through our tight junctions, which could be uh, disrupted by dysbiosis per se, um, and then they uh, act with the macrophage and the, um, the uh, toll-like receptors, the TR, TLRs, um, which uh, affect how our bacteria are handled when they get through or bacterial byproducts are handled. And then once this macrophage is activated, the T cells start changing, and we shift from a T2, T1 to a T2. Uh, we get more active T cells, which start producing bad chemicals, such as tumor necrosis factor, which can then cause more leaky gut, 
increased intestinal permeability is the true name for leaky gut. And that allows more uh, antigens to get through, which excites the activity of our uh, intestine. There are so many inflammatory chemicals that have been described in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, but um, many of these phenomenon uh, and uh, active inflammatory chemicals are going on and um, we have involvement of the uh, white blood cells, the uh, macrophages, neutrophil, sorry, white blood cells, macrophages, and eosinophils. So there's a lot to handle. And with all this, I can say there's no one drug that's going to handle all these inflammatory chemicals. And many of my patients are treated with multimodality therapy. And we're going to say right now, that nothing works for everybody. So how could LDN work in IBD? Well, it does regulate cell growth, which is important uh, with all those T cells becoming active. Uh, it stabilizes the, the toll-like receptors. Um, if you can stabilize that, you'll have less cytokine production, as uh, was discussed earlier. It um, has a role in reducing bacteria and bacterial byproduct translocating and getting down below the layer. Um, this is something that I've only seen once um, uh, in the literature, decreasing uh, vascular permeability as a factor for LDN. And um, if the capillaries and microcapillaries are less uh, permeable, then the um, blood cells are less likely to get out into the submucosa and be effective. There's a shift in the uh, paradigm uh, for the Th uh, immune system, and there may be a role for killer cells. Um, this goes over, uh, again, uh, what I said earlier. And killer cells um, factor in to some degree in the mucosa of ulcerative colitis. Um, it's part of the immune disturbance that there are more killer cells which, act, which interact with antigens um, triggering the autoimmune response. And again, as mentioned before, the autoimmune phenomenon, uh, therapeutic uh, implications of LDN are important and will be addressed later in this convention. Now, uh, we know that if you give naltrexone continuously to animals, that it actually increases killer cells. So the hope is, and perhaps why it might work in this regard, is that we're giving small amounts for a short time, which could increase endorphins and do uh, a better job against killer cells. Traditional therapy, it's suppress immune system. Knock it down, knock it down. Um, uh, but uh, very important ulcerative colitis is reducing prostaglandins and free radicals with the 5-ASA medications, the misalamine types. But nonetheless, what we've got to prescribe as gastroenterologists uh, out there are expensive, potentially toxic medications, and they only work 30 to 70 percent. 
Also, when we're talking about narcotics, which is the antithesis to LDN, they are associated with increased infections and mortality. So the, those who take narcotics continuous, and this is a group of, large group of Crohn's patients, they had a 1.5 um, times more likelihood of dying um, or, and a three times greater likelihood of getting serious infections if they were taking narcotics, suggesting that they were actually increasing inflammation. I'm going to go through the drugs very quickly that we've got. Prednisone, hosts of problems with it. As you can see, it only works to get people into a suppressed state but not in remission. The 5-ASA drugs, misalamines, do a good job um, in about 65% getting people into remission and ulcerative colitis, not so much for Crohn's at all. Um, and, but there are potential significant side effects that we worry about. Thioprines, that's azathioprine, 6-mercaptopurine, and purinethal, different names for uh, thioprines, um, can only maintain remission. You have to get it into remission. And the severe phenomenon, uh, the allergic pancreatitis, which is in uh, seven three to seven percent of patients can be very devastating. The leukopenia, extremely devastating. Um, and it's a seven percent likelihood lifetime that you'll have that bad effect and drop somebody's white count, giving them an infection. And then what we really start worrying about is as uh, with uh, transplant patients, long-term uh, thioprene uh, use can increase the risk of lymphoma and skin cancer. So we need something new, something, something better. Um, and then the uh, infliximab, um, the NITNF drugs um, that cost $20,000 a year only work uh, in 18 to 50 percent, and there are many problems associated with them. So years ago, uh, I read Dr. Uh, Smith's lead, in, and I took her lead in my inflammatory bowel disease patients, both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, because you know many of the drugs that we use are the same. And so uh, utilizing her spark and uh, enthusiasm, um, I took a patient like this who had Crohn's disease. Um, she had a total colectomy. Um, and then started recurring in her ileum with this ulcer. Uh, she was on infliximab, Ramacade, um, and uh, was uh, given LDN and had a dramatic response, and she's been in uh, remission for six years. Um, now, she was partially responding to this, so I added the LDN, and um, we don't see any activity, and she's doing great. Um, so just in my Crohn's experience uh, that I published and then I've had uh, since uh, in the last two years more patients, obviously um, 33 patients with moderate to severe patients who were failing therapy, uh, treated them uh, with the 4.5 dose, uh, 5 out of the 33 had to withdraw. Uh, but of the patients uh, who responded in a, what I call a significant clinical manner, they said they were markedly or moderately improved, 
um, that was 15 out of 33. That was a significant uh, win for those 15 patients. And then 11 were rescoped, and eight had a complete healing, and two had partial healing. My ulcerative colitis data actually started with this patient prior to my Crohn's patients, and he had very severe, sorry, very severe uh, ulcerative colitis. He was on biological therapy, added the LDN, and that took away all the inflammation, little pseudopolyp there, but the lumen opened up, all the pus, all the inflammation disappeared, and he's been great for seven years. So I looked at a retrospective group of 12 patients who were given uh, LDN in alternative colitis. Their other medications are listed here, uh, kind of bottom lining it. 10 were on biological therapies and or 6MP when the LDN was started. Um, and um, all had failed simple therapy or were failing simple therapy with 5-ASA. Half of the group had a marked to moderate response, significant reduction in diarrhea, bleeding, abdominal discomfort, and overall well-being. And this group of patients was followed um, to the date of this publication for 70 weeks uh, up to um, 270 weeks. Um, now, 6-MP, um, does it affect the clinical response or not? Well, at least in um, Dr. Smith's patients, uh, it did not factor in. And on my patients, three who were on 6-MP getting partial response did have a marked response. Um, the other three had uh, uh, one failed because of adverse events, insomnia, and the other two just failed. Um, two of the six patients were rescoped and had a complete response, including the one that I showed you. These were tough cases. Um, you know, they, many, many of the doctors I work with would have just sent them for a total colectomy, and some actually did, but nonetheless, two uh, of the six that failed, failed a biological agent. One was on three drugs and one was on four drugs. And so it's really, uh, this study was dealing with significant problems. So subsequently, um, I've treated um, 11 patients. Um, these nine had active disease. And I started treating some of the milder patients uh, with monotherapy, namely LDN alone, as an experiment, if you will. Um, and uh, of the monotherapy groups, um, marked response in two, and mild to moderate, although it's early in one of them, and then mild uh, response in another where I had to add therapy. So there may be a role for monotherapy with LDN in uh, these patients. Uh, more often, I'm using them in combination, and uh, thus, uh, at the, with these nine, uh, four clearly are in a very good state with LDN, 
and one may well um, do better in time. Then we get into one other quandary. Um, we've got these patients who are on five ASA therapy and six mercaptopurine, and they're doing great, and it's keeping them in remission, but I'm getting nervous because longer and longer they're on it, as risk for lymphoma, and I've had one uh, 6MP patient develop lymphoma, and four patients now who've developed skin cancers. So I'm saying, what can I do to change that? And it's uh, not too dissimilar about what can we do to prevent cancer that was mentioned on the last lecture. So the fact is, is when you stop uh, 6MP in patients who are in deep remission, you're going to have relapse uh, in uh, basically by two years, uh, fourth will relapse. So uh, I've been talking to my patients lately, and two patients uh, of the four that I've had discussion with have decided to switch from 6MP to LDN to see if we can keep him in remission. I keep them going with their misalamine, and uh, there's good reason for that in that it can uh, effectively keep people in remission and also ha may have some anti-cancer uh, factors. Uh, so far, so good. But again, knowing the natural history, uh, anything could happen in the next two years. So it's going to be time before I can uh, state anything on this. So in summary, LDN, I think it plays a role. It's inexpensive, low cost, uh, low toxicity. Um, it adds something to the mechanism of action that we need. And we need different mechanism of actions just because IBD is so complex. Um, for the first time uh, in anybody's publications, it can be, therefore, used with other drugs. Um, Dr. Smith has certainly used it with 6MP, but I've, my publications show that it can be safe and effective with uh, drugs like infliximab uh, or adaluzumab. It can work with 6MP. Uh, it may work for monotherapy in uh, mild cases. Severe cases, I'm worried because this is a disease that if it gets out of hand, can lead towards total colectomy. So I'm not advocating this, uh, but it's something to consider in your own clinical practice. Randomized controlled trials are very important because unfortunately with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, there is a significant placebo response. And that's the importance also of rescoping to see if there's endoscopic healing. And that was done very well in uh, one of Dr. Smith's double-blind studies, uh, which I thought had a significant clinical impact. And it needs to be done in ulcerative colitis as well. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.